This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Welcome to Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. I'm your host, Leonard DiLorenzo, except today I'm not really your host. I'm going to be the guest on today's show. We have a guest host today, which is my friend and colleague, Katie Cavadini, who teaches theology at the University of Notre Dame and directs our Master's of Arts in Theology program. Katie is teaching a master's level course this semester on telling the stories of the saints. And she asked me if she could interview me for that course since I wrote a book on the theology of the communion of saints. So today's episode is Katie's interview of me on the theology of the communion of saints. I hope you enjoy. Here's Katie Cavadini. Hi, friends. For class this week, we are interviewing my friend Lenny DeLorenzo, who works in the theology department and in the McGrath Institute for Church Life on campus. Lenny recently did a book called Work of Love. It's about the communion of saints, and that's what we're going to talk to him about. Yes. You, you regularly do these reading or radio shows? I do them. Awesome. Yeah. We have an episode just about every week. And our students could look for them if they wanted to. They could. Church Life Today. Okay. All right. All right. So that means that Lenny's listeners get to hear a little bit from our class. I thought we'd start with a pretty basic question, which Great. is a basic question the students had at the beginning of, you know, the materials for this week, which is just, how would you describe the communion of saints? Hmm. Well, I can say a number of things. Maybe none of them are very insightful, but we'll give it a shot. So I think one thing I'd say right off the bat is that the communion of saints is both the shape and the substance of Christian hope. How about that? The shape and the substance. And what I mean by that is I say it's the shape because I think especially in our modern world, Mm -hmm. even modern Mm -hmm. practices of Christianity, we have like a really individualizing impulse. Yeah, Things will get often, for many of us, even in our prayer lives perhaps, reduced to an individual level. And we might ultimately think of salvation as primarily an individual affair, primarily maybe even a private affair. It's about me Mm -hmm. potentially, hopefully, being saved. But I say that the communion of saints is the shape of Christian hope because we're saved into a body. We're saved into a communion, in fact. And there is no salvation in Christianity that is not communal. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as private salvation. Right. But I say it's also the substance of Christian hope because really the communion of saints should guide us in what we hope for. It's given to us. Mm-hmm. But it's not just an idea that's given to us. People are given to us. Right. The church is given to us. It reach, These people reach to us and seek our good, our salvation. So I'd say it in, in those two ways. It's the shape and the substance of Christian salvation. It's a really beautiful way to present the idea, right? You have It reminds me of the way the incarnation is a way, mm. right? And you think of having this road and the saints are like, this road, but also yeah. part of the way yeah, that I is like Christ. That. Okay, so something else you were saying about, you know, things, it's not private, it's not individual. It reminds me of a quote from Chesterton about the saints. Okay. and He's got a quote I, on everything. Yeah, he does. It's like an index of uh, Chesterton quotes. Here's the thing. <laughs> True. Also, he's, aren't people like hoping for his canonization? Some people, like, I'm sure. In the process? Probably. Anyway, okay, so one of these Chesterton quotes okay. happens to be this. 
well, it's not exactly this, but he's known for having said that each generation is converted by the saint that contradicts it most. Hmm. And so given what you're saying about sort of individuality and the privateness of things, hmm. like I'm wondering if like this current generation, the, just the idea of the communion of saints or maybe a saint that presents that communion so beautifully hmm. is what would convert or has the power to convert. Yeah. I think there really is something to that. And maybe I should I should begin by kind of amending my previous response or just <laughs> clarifying it, not okay. changing it. Okay. So when I say salvation is not individual or mm-hmm. private, I don't mean it's not personal. Right. It's That's fully different. personal. It has to do yeah. with every part of who you are. And then to go on to this idea that Chesterton proposes, I think just about every saint could convert just about every generation if we looked at them clearly. Mm-hmm. I think we have a, a tendency and sometimes a desire to see the saints as a bit too much like us. It's comforting, right? Yeah. I want to find, sometimes it's, I want to find the saint that's most like me. Uh-huh. I want to find the saint that speaks to me. But sometimes I think what we're doing is we're speaking and hearing our own echo mm-hmm. in that saint. Mm-hmm. I think if we really look at the saints, if we really look at them as they are, they should first shock us mm-hmm. before they comfort us. Should they comfort us? Yes, and in the end they should comfort us. But first they should shock us. Because I think what we see in each of the saints in their own particular splendid way is what it looks like to be redeemed, to be grasped by love, but also to be conformed and committed to that love. So let's take a, well, let's take one example. Okay. All right. So we take Mother Teresa. Oh, good one. You know, highly, deeply popular saint, (laughs) right? But also one of the most cliched saints of all times. We even have sayings like, well, you don't have to be Mother Teresa or, you know, stop being a a Mother Teresa like it's a type. Well, of course, you know, when her private writings are released, people are then, we are all scandalized that she had spent decades feeling incredible spiritual emptiness and darkness. Mm -hmm. But if you follow, if we're allowed and we take the courage to follow her witness all the way through, and by that I mean into the depths of her prayer, to actually practice praying as she prays, to practice looking at those who are poor and suffering a little bit like she sees them, it's perhaps shocking that she is feels that desolation, but in another way, not surprising. She mm-hmm. took on into herself the condition of those she loved most. Mm-hmm. That is mm-hmm. one of the most eloquent and elegant teachings on love that we could have, that you would allow yourself to be affected so much that your interior life would look like the conditions of those who are the poorest of the poor. And I think the depth of her love for Christ and the depth of Christ's love for her is not aside from that. It's right in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. She takes on the condition of those she loves. Is there anything that's more of a Christ-like move than that? So for Chesterton's quote to come back to that, we might be very, very much desiring a sort of social saint, somebody who responds to the social ills of the day. But the witness of Mother Teresa, who might seem like she's just the right person to comfort us in mm-hmm. what we're looking for, yeah. she also shocks us because the depth of her commitment and love is very different than addressing social issues just on their own. She's addressing people and loving people with all of herself. Yeah. Well, and it's really beautiful the way you talk about her taking in mm. into herself, right, the people who she's serving. And I think already you're pointing to towards the way then in which her particular story 
opens up the understanding of community, mm. but even more than community, communion. Communion. Right? Because yeah. those are different things. Right. Right? Right. Especially when we're thinking of the communion of saints. And so her individual story has a way of telling us about the communion of saints and then opening it up to the church today, to culture today. And so maybe doing what I was hoping or twisting Chesterton's <laughs> quote the way I kind of wanted to, <laughs> sure. right? To fit, I guess, my purposes. But yeah. to draw out this point, it's really yeah. beautiful. Thanks. All right. So can I ask you then about death yeah. and the community of saints? <laughs> Things to about, say in a bar. Hey, could I, yeah. could I ask you about so, that? Yeah. Hey. Yeah. So what about, so what about I mean, death and yeah, the communion like, of saints? The death seems to be, at least from what I've read. Mm-hmm. Um, Having diff- not experienced it. Right. Just read about it. Yeah, I've yeah. only read about it. That it's... I don't know if it's a sticking point, a stumbling block, something mm-hmm. that because we haven't experienced it and don't know it, it makes it hard to understand the communion of saints yeah. and the communication. Yes. Right. That's another point, the communication between the saints, living yeah. and dead. This actually is where I kind of started in thinking about um, the book that I eventually wrote, Work of Love on the yeah. Theology of the Communion of Saints. In the dogmatic constitution of the church, Lumen Gentium of Vatican II, in the was it the seventh chapter? It says that there is a communion of the church that is in no way interrupted. And at mm-hmm. that point, it's, okay. ta- it's beginning to talk about the saints, the saints in glory, the, saint, the church, those who are members of the church undergoing purgation, the pilgrim members of the church, like us, walking around. And it says there's a communion that, that's in no way interrupted, except... There is a major interruption, yeah. right? Death. There is. I mean, there's lots of interruption, but there's yeah. one major interruption, right. death. Whether it's from the canonized saints or it's from my own loved ones, mm-hmm. your own loved ones. There is an interruption that sometimes very personally we feel because right. we don't see and know and seem to have contact with those who have been taken from us. Mm-hmm. So what to make of death? Well, I think there are a few different options And only one of them is right. (laughs) One of the options is to soft play death, to kind of ignore the finality of death, Mm -hmm. to sometimes it's to caricature it. (laughs) Sometimes it's to, well, even just almost deny that it's happened, to go back to the way of life that was there before death has interrupted our communal, my personal life. Mm-hmm. to almost forget the one that has died, to act like that one has not died, right. to throw yourself back into activity. The other thing to do is to have, I think, uh, a too saccharine understanding of, well, you could call it hope, but it's not really hope. And I've heard this at funerals, the eul- yeah. you know, at, yeah. at my grandfather's funeral. Like, well, now Luis DiLorenzo is off on the beautiful golf course that never ends. Where yeah, I've heard ones about baseball. Right, where every yeah. putt goes in, and it's like, is, is that what I'm hoping for? And no, also, yeah. this has nothing to do with Luis DiLorenzo. So, <laughs> he did play golf? He did play yeah. golf. Oh, oh, sorry. Well, see. Yes, yeah. but it, it does have something very little to do with him. How about that? <laughs> I think the only option that is open to us as Christians is the most difficult option, which is to take death utterly seriously. It is a real end, mm-hmm. a real end to this life. And it's an end to this life of this one who's died. And it's also the end in some ways for those of us who remain living. Something has ended and Mm -hmm. it's definitive. And in its own way, it's final. And then hope comes in. That the hope we have as Christians is not a hope that has gone around death. It's not a hope that 
has offered some cheap elixir. Mm-hmm. It's hope that has actually himself descended into the state of being dead, into the grave. Right. And that even from there, especially from there, the love for the father and the father's love for the son Mm -hmm. has been enacted. So if we're to hope, we have to learn how to hope, I think, from there, where we take death utterly seriously and believe that the one who has entered into death and risen from it has made even death and perhaps especially death a place of communion. Right. And that's so beautiful. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. I'm Katie Cavadini, a guest host today interviewing your regular host, Lenny Lorenzo, about the communion of saints. So death, right? We need to have a whole new view of it, really. Yes. You're saying a more serious view of it. But it becomes something that actually opens up communion. Yes. And we might hope because we pray to the saints and we pray for their intercession, communication as well, mm-hmm. right? All right. So in part, what you're talking about is like when you say that God has entered all the way down into our death, you're talking about the reality of the resurrection, mm-hmm. right? And so I also want to ask you, now we've talked about death, what is heaven? Uh. My daughter came home with a coloring sheet from school. She's in second grade, a Catholic school. And she was talking about death as a place. And I immediately wanted to say, we got to talk about it as more than a place, <laughs> right? Like, how do I explain to you heaven? Yeah. So what is heaven? Well, we're giving, we're given images, mm-hmm. right? We're given the image of a city. That And I think that's important, the heavenly city, because a city has organization. A city has, mm. it has blocks. It has a, a communal dimension to it. It's a society where things happen. People are held together. Heaven is a household, mm. a mansion even, not an apartment building, <laughs> right, where everybody has their own private uh-huh. space, private, right. but a household where you learn not where you learn, where you have learned to live together. And I think even, let's say the parable of the the prodigal son or Mm -hmm. the prodigal father is really instructive here because it is the parable of this father who has two sons. That's how it begins. A man has two, had two sons. And for either of them to be at home in that household, Mm -hmm. the father's household means to accept the father's terms, which are the father's love. But those terms, that love means that the younger son must also accept the elder brother. And the elder son, who's left outside in the end, it's an open question, Mm -hmm. in order to go into that household, his father's household, Mm -hmm. he also must accept his younger brother and rejoice at his homecoming. That's an image of heaven, I think. A household like that where we rejoice at each other's homecoming. St. Augustine in the last book of City of God Mm -hmm. gives a... I know he's starting to, he's like musing on the, the life of the saint. What is heaven, uh-huh, right? Right, yeah. And he, he gives this image of the saints are spending all day, every day, singing of the mercies bestowed upon them. Mm-hmm. In that way, they're saying, here are the ways in which I had fallen in sin, in which I have suffered, in which I was wounded. And here is how the Lord rescued me. But as they sing these praises, mm-hmm. each of the other saints hears these praises and rejoices with them. And if we think about the way we live our lives now, most of the time, and if we were honest, like, do we really rejoice at others' good very well? Or are we not tinged with envy? Yeah. Or we're worried about our own well-being, private well-being. And if we can imagine such a state of communion where we're freed of that envy, where we're freed of regret and shame, and we are freed to rejoice in the good of others, I think we have a glimpse of heaven like this household where charity reigns. Right. 
That's so beautiful. And and for Augustine, right, that that parable of the prodigal son you bring up, mm-hmm. it's so like fundamental to the way that he sees himself, mm. but also to the way in which he sees God. Right? You said it's not just the prodigal son; it's the prodigal father. Yeah. Right. And for him, like, so he's prodigal in a sense that he throws himself away. Yeah. But the son, you know, Jesus Christ is prodigal, like utterly prodigal because he comes and gives himself away so as to give Augustine himself back. Yeah. Right? It's so beautiful the way he opens up and, and you've if, opened up that. that and if too. there were any son who yeah. had the right to be embittered, yeah. wouldn't it be the son <laughs> of God who's welcoming in somebody like Augustine? Mm-hmm. So in that way, right. I mean, I've thought about this. I, mean, I don't think this is my original idea, but I've given thought to it, like the way in which Jesus takes the place of both those sons. Mm-hmm. Um, the elder son and the younger son in the prodigal son parable that, like you said so rightly, like he, Christ gives everything away. Mm-hmm. He empties himself of all. He who d- shared equality with God did not deem it something to be great. Emptied himself of it all, takes the position of the younger son. Mm-hmm. And yet for all those younger children, all of the sinners, all of the tax collectors, all of the sheep that are far and distant, all of the lost coins that are back into the household. He lays down, Christ does, he lays down his right to be bitter, his right to not welcome them back. He makes space. It's his, it's their household too. Right. So this image of communion you're presenting, you know, through this, the prodigal son, the parable, it's opening up the idea of communion in which these saints exist, both those who have passed through death and those who are still living. And in Book Nine of the Confessions, which presents us so beautifully in the way he addresses his mother, the way mm-hmm. he presents his own life in the end because of the persuasiveness of his mother and the beauty of Christ, that um, he comes into that communion in a very real way. Yeah. Friends, you're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. I'm Katie Cavadini, a guest host today, interviewing your regular host, Leonard DiLorenzo, about the communion of saints. And I actually have just one question left yeah. for. Well, can I say host. something about con- confessions? Yeah, sure, book please nine, do. Since um, you're making such a great point there about yeah. that. So as you were rightly noting, like in book nine of the confessions where there is the death of Augustine's mother, mm, Monica. Right, right. Some I've been struck by. I mean, you've read this more times than yeah, I, I have. I don't know right? about I, that. Yeah. I but love read, it, but I don't know. read it several times and teaching it and coming to see just mm-hmm. the beauty and the complexity and in some ways the simplicity of the text too. True. But earlier in the confessions, he tells of another death of a friend of his. Mm-hmm. I think it's in book four. And how he, Augustine, was overcome with black grief at his friend's death. Right. But there's a really curious thing in book four, which is, and sometimes I ask my students this. I was like, oh, yeah, hey, by the way, you read book four. Okay, the friend died. What was the friend's name? And there's like 50, and they're looking. He's he's not named. You know why? I was just going through my mind. Yeah, you're like, which friend is it? Yeah. He's not named in book four. Because I think the point is Augustine showing us I didn't give this person the space to be his own person. Uh-huh. What was he? He was my friend. I've claimed him. I've locked so him up. So the reference up. was to Augustine. The reference is to Augustine. Right. And when this friend is taken from him, and not only taken from him, but is baptized first, with August, which Augustine thinks is ridiculous yeah. that his friend was baptized. Yeah. When the idea of his friend is closed up and his friend is taken from him, it's a tragedy for Augustine, mm-hmm. right? And he has nothing to do with that grief. There's nowhere to put it. And so he just closes in on himself. But in book nine, right. it's sort of it's the healing of that. There's three deaths in book nine. A good friend, his son, and then his mother. Mm-hmm. And the death of his mother and the response to the death of his mother seems to be the healing of that. And I think it's instructive for us because his mother's instruction to him, mm-hmm. request was, I ask you to do just one thing, Augustine. Remember me at the altar. Right. Offer the sacrifice, you know, remember me in the sacrifice of the mass, mm-hmm. of the Eucharist. 
And there's something deeply healing about that for Augustine, that now he is no less stricken with grief, but he has something to do with that grief. He can cry to God. He can pray for the repose of his mother's soul. He can offer his grief in the sacrifice of the altar. And by the end of book nine, he does a really incredible thing. He turns to his readers and he says, will you You not also join Mm -hmm. me in praying for her? So now he's asked everybody to pray for mom. There's something to do. There's someone to pray for and to pray to. And I think Augustine has made space in himself for his mother's concern. Right. He didn't have that space for his friend in book four. Yeah, and in telling that story, right, presenting to everyone who's reading, he's opening up that communion even to them also. Exactly. Right? So Asking this communion us to make that space. I have found now, like you also come will come into the space or yeah. yeah, exactly. Christ wants to make us more spacious. Yeah. It's the divine renovation in human terms. <laughs> he's making us more spacious. Right. Yeah. I'm unworthy that you should enter under my roof. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. All right. So I want to end with another Teresa, or we should say Therese. What, right, we started wanna, with Mother Teresa. Yeah. We're going to end with Therese of Lisieux. Okay. And so I'm going to read a little quote here okay. that you use in your work of love. Um, her quote. It's her quote. That I write it. That you use. Copy it. Right, because part of what we're talking about is this communion, right? But mm-hmm. it's not just a communion between you and me here, also between a communion between you and me here and Therese. Yeah. In part because of the way God has entered into death and left us that love substantially, right, in remembrance of that death. Right. Okay, so here's the quote from Therese. Um, I believe it's in A Story of a Soul. It is. Yeah. I feel no, it's not. Sorry. It's no, from it's her not. last conversations. This is written down from what she said on her deathbed. Okay. Sorry. Not from Story of a Soul. I think I read it through Dorothy Day <laughs> writing about Therese, <laughs> right, and I, right. I assumed okay. it was in The Story of a Soul. Yeah. All right. So here's the quote, friends. I feel that I'm about to enter into my rest, but I feel especially that my mission is about to begin my mission of making God loved as I love him, of giving my little way to souls. If God answers my desires, my heaven will be spent on earth until the end of the world. Yes, I want to spend my heaven in doing good on earth. This isn't impossible, since from the bosom of the beatific vision, the angels watch over us. I can't make heaven a feast of rejoicing. I can't rest as long as there are souls to be saved. Right? That's such a beautiful thing that she says, but it shows... It illustrates the communion of saints. Yeah. It's beautiful right? and it's crazy talk at the yes. same time, right? <laughs> like, look, I mean, can you imagine this? Like, you've worked your whole life. Let's imagine this is a career. I've worked my whole life, 40 years, 50 years, whatever it is that you're in your job. You're coming up to retirement. Uh-huh. And it's like, I'm about to enter into retirement. <laughs> And I want to spend retirement. retirement doing more work in the same way, in a similar way that I was doing it before. It's like, no, you're, you're retiring. Mm-hmm. I think in kind of similar terms, here is this great saint mm-hmm. who knows that she's loved, knows that she's the beloved of Christ, maybe has too much confidence in that even, <laughs> right? But she feels deeply, she knows, she believes that she's about to enter into the rest of Christ, the mm-hmm this beatific rest, to be claimed by him. And she says, I want my idea of that kind of rest is hastening towards the sinners and the suffering ones who need his love. Mm -hmm. There's this sweet unrest of the saints now, the sweet unrest of the saints, that they are so taken into the love of Christ that they want not just to receive that love themselves, but also to offer it and to be participants in the movement of that love. They don't just mm-hmm. love Christ. They love who Christ loves in the manner that he loves them. Mm-hmm. And I think Therese gives us a little window into that great mystery right there. 
Elsewhere, she talks about, you know, all of her sacrifices and prayers here on earth while she yeah. was living. She says, I see these as little flowers, roses that I'm strewing at the feet of the throne of the great king in mm -hmm. heaven. And he'll delight in these roses, my sacrifices, my prayers offered for others. Mm -hmm. And she says, through the intercession of the saints, through Christ and his saints, those roses will then be showered back upon the earth and they'll be efficacious. They'll heal. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, she says, when I, when I am lifted to heaven, I intend to shower these roses upon the earth, right. a little bit of which we hear here. I think Therese is so convicted by this fundamental vision of communion that whether from here or from there, whether from earth or for heaven, it is one communion of charity being worked out mm -hmm. through prayer and sacrifice that the sins of some are yeah. claimed by the others, by the saints, and that those saints seek to help heal us of those sins right. so we too can share the joy that they, they enjoy. Yeah, okay, so you know another image that's, that is in the story of a soul? The one of Christ thirsting? Yes. Right, and Therese says, I'm going to stay at the foot of the cross and I'm going to bring Take, him. Like dew. I'm yeah. going to collect his, his, his blood like dew. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and she wants to bring him drink. That's it. But she also, like in the way she tells her life, right, she brings drink to other people, not yes. necessarily in the form of water, but she says people need to drink of God's love, mm. right? And so the way she says, like, my mission of making God loved is I love him, even from heaven, she says, right, I love everyone. Like, God, if you want me to love people, yeah. I can only love them with your love. Exactly. And so it's this, this idea of a communion, right, yeah. opening up. And, and so the other image for it is this idea that Christ was thirsting. I'm going to give him to drink, but I'm also going to be giving, you know, all the little souls of my little way, all souls who ask for it, a drink. Yeah. So another image. But also, you know, that's in the fourth pillar of the catechism. Yeah. Like prayer is when you're praying, you're coming to drink. Yeah. And so even opens up the communion then to... Yeah. So all of us. Her first, right? the person she claims as her first spiritual child, Henri Pranzini, was this convicted right. murderer in Paris. She never met him. She just right. read the news clippings. Yeah. He, was, he wasn't repentant. She was so bothered by this as a child. So she just did everything she knew she could do, which is nothing, mm -hmm. except appeal to the treasuries of the church. She offered masses for him mm -hmm. with her sister. She offered little devotion. She made little sacrifices and she just prayed, poured everything out for him. Mm -hmm. And it was told that when he was being executed, he kissed a cross right, right beforehand. And she took this as a sign of God responding to her prayers, mm -hmm. of Christ claiming him and moving this sinner towards repentance. But it's precisely this sort of thing you're talking about, like this Henri Pranzini was quenched by the love of God channeled to him through her prayers. And there's such a great mystery there in the power of the prayer of the saints, of our own prayers for each other, that we can't unravel it and understand it. I think we can only participate in it and do right. it. So to enter into this story. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. All right. Well, thank you for this beautiful conversation on the saints. It's been great to be with you. Thank you. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners.